0: if you have a Bible with you this evening, can I encourage you to open with me to Genesis once more and to chapter 45 uh, this evening as we continue this series in the life of Joseph. And of course, coming now to see Joseph uh, really reveal himself unto his brothers. So Genesis 45, beginning to read at verse 1 and reading through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And they wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down now to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows: 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Amen. And we thank God for his... Father, uh, once again, as we come
1: to this dramatic part of the story of Joseph that you will give us ears open and hearts open to hear just about this whole subject of reconciliation and that we will be shaped by your word and understand what you have to say. Lord, we look to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 45, if you have a Bible, please open there. I don't think you can find a more dramatic emotional story in all of the Bible than the chapter we just read. Joseph reveals who he is to his brothers. Remember, he tested them over the last um, uh, number of, of chapters just to see if they'd changed, whether they would give up Benjamin just the way they'd given up him. So he tested them to see if they'd changed. And now the time had come to reveal the truth of who he he was and who he is, because they, they passed the test, you see. 22 years had gone by since Joseph was sold into slavery. I mean, that should have been the end of the story of Joseph, really. Missing, presumed in slavery. Or we might say, missing, presumed dead. Isn't that the report that they often sent back from the war? But the brothers forgot what we often forget, that God has a plan and that God is in control. So, do you remember the the parts of the story? Joseph was purchased by Potiphar to be a slave. Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of rape. Therefore, he spent many years in prison. But after some dream interpretation, Joseph was released from prison, became prime minister of Egypt. At the same time, there was a famine in Canaan. And that resulted in the brothers coming to Egypt looking for food. And that's how God brought Joseph and his brothers together again. And Joseph... He longed to be united with his family, especially his dad, and also his younger brother, Benjamin. Family relationships are important to us all, I hope. We we normally long to have loving, healthy family relationships, and we're grieved. We're grieved when those relationships are fractured. And so, Joseph was so glad to be reconciled to his brothers. I know you've heard it before, but we need to repeat it again, because the Bible repeats it again and again. God is in sovereign control, and God shows his providential care. Sovereign rule, providential care. Over and over and over again, we see it in Genesis, particularly we see it in the story of Joseph. And here we see, in a sense, the pinnacle of it all, as Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. We have two main sections, the reconciliation and then the provision, and we'll spend more time on the first part. Let's think of, first of all, the reconciliation, verses 1 to 15. Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. Let's have a quick summary of what happens and then look at how it happens or maybe might we say why it happened the way it did. So think of all, first of all, of verses one and two, just the sheer emotion of it all. When then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. He couldn't hold it in anymore. This is like an emotional meltdown. The dams break, the tears flow, and the picture here is, uh, is of, of his cheeks and chin just, just wet with tears. The word cried out there, um, wept loudly in verse 2, uh, it, it means... Um, a, it means deep sobbing. It's a very strong idea. And everyone heard it. It was wailing at the top of his voice. Now, weeping is not always bad. You know, when Harry Kane leaves Spurs, that's, a, that's a, an issue we should weep over. But this is even at a different level. And, of course, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 says there's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn. And these, this was a time of weeping with joy. And then, of course, there's the great revelation or the great revealing in verses 3 to 4. And basically, he says, I am Joseph. The disguise is dropped, the veil's removed, the anonymity is abandoned. Remember, he would have been, been dressed like, uh, and I would have had the... the the the, the shaving, his face would have been like the shaving of of a typical Egyptian. They would not have recognized him after 22 years and in disguise. And he says, I am Joseph. And note, what is his first question? What's his first question to his brothers? Is my father still living? His chief concern. Now, if, if you've been with us, you know that the brothers had reported a number of times that his father was still alive, but he wanted to know. He needed reassurance. Just tell me one more time. Is my father alive? The brothers were terrified. End of verse 3 there. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say. Verse 4 basically repeats this amazing revelation, and Joseph uses his Hebrew name. There's shock, there's terror, there's amazement, because actually Joseph isn't scolding them here. In fact, he isn't tormenting them, but they were dumb with guilt and with shame. And that leads us to the next little section, doctrine, which we're going to leave for a moment or two. Verses 5 to 8 is the heart, I think, of the whole revelation and reconciliation process. But let me give you a little clue. Joseph had a God-centered faith. He believed in God's sovereignty, and he believed in God's care, and that's what led him to be able to be reconciled to his brothers. So, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute or two, but let's continue with the story. Verse 9 to 13, again, we see the concern about who, about what. Well, again, it says, dad, isn't it? Uh, old Jacob at home in Canaan. And, and in verse 9 there, for instance, he gives a command, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Note the first word that he's supposed to speak to his father is what? God has made me Lord of all Egypt, and then there's this promise in verse 10. You know, a first-class care in the posh part of Egypt. You shall live in the region of Goshen. That's the posh part. What's the posh part of Rachel? I, I was thinking Road would be. That would be where the posh people live. Well, Goshen was definitely the posh part of Egypt. First-class care in the best part of Egypt. And verse 11, I will provide for you. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. I think it's implied there, because you provided for me, Dad. I am going to provide for you. Dangerous days are ahead. Still five more years of famine. You could die, Dad. Dad. If you don't come here. And verse 12, it's a there's no dream, no ghost, this is real. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. That it is really I who am speaking to you. And then verse 13: Tell my dad, our dad, what God has done for me, what God has done through me in Egypt. And I want all my family, I want all my family. To be with me here in Egypt, and I want to care for you all. Very Jesus like, isn't it? Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? He said to John, or first of all to Mary, Mother, behold your son. And then to his son John, behold your mother. And then lastly, we see um, lots of hugs and kisses in the sign of of unity, verses 14 and 15. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. You notice there's no bitterness here, no unforgiving spirit. He kissed all his brothers. It's unconditional love. And notice at the end of verse 15, afterwards his brothers talked with him. Can you imagine what that conversation would have been like? Lots and lots of questions, confessed sin, and sorting out the dirty linen together in this whole process of reconciliation. Now, up to verse 15, Joseph does all the talking. The brothers are just basically silenced. The shock was increased among the boys, not just by what he said, but by how he said it. Because as far as we can tell from these verses, there's no anger, no bitterness, and no revenge. Just kindness, and acceptance, and promises, and hugs, and kisses, and tears. But the question is, how could Joseph forgive his brothers? How could he do it? after all that they'd put him through, after all that they'd put their father through, how could he forgive them? Well, can we suggest that it was his attitude to God, his attitude to his life and history, his attitude to his unfair treatment, it's his attitude that was the key Reconciliation. Joseph had a spiritual, gracious, God centered attitude. And at the heart of reconciliation between you and your brother or your sister or your child or your grandchild or whoever it happens to be, even your neighbor, members of the church, at the heart of reconciliation, at the heart of all good relationships, is a spiritual, gracious God. Centered attitude. And when we have this God-centered, God-enabled attitude, we can see past the rejection, we can see past harsh treatment, and it opens the way to fixing broken relationships. So really, it is down to that word, the A word, attitude. It's my attitude. It's our attitude to these people who hurt us and to the hurtful things that have been said and done to us, we need to have an attitude that is spiritual and gracious and God-centered if we're going to be reconciled. And yes, so often, it is the offended one, the one who's been hurt, who must take the initiative. Joseph here takes the initiative He doesn't wait for the brothers. He takes the initiative just like Jesus takes the initiative with us. But the temptation for me and you is to allow hurt and anger to grow like a monster inside our very souls and that this monster can dominate us and ultimately destroy us. And we're more about But behind, by the way, very often the smiling face, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's hostility, there's a gunning for revenge, and you're just waiting for that moment when that person falls or gets hurt, and you will rejoice. And this chapter, I think, says we've got to pull up and pull out the root of bitterness, and plant the fruit of the Spirit attitudes within our lives. So the key to forgiveness, the key to reconciliation, is a willing attitude. But of course, what shapes and empowers a willing attitude? That's the next obvious question. Well, I think the lesson from 45, and I think we've already touched on it, is submission to our sovereign God. That's that's the key to the attitude. The, The key to reconciliation is attitude. The key to attitude is submission to the sovereignty of God. I mean, Joseph could make this hard choice to forgive. Joseph could cultivate the right attitude because God was central in his life. Now, this is a crucial doctrine, friends. And when we know this doctrine, and when we believe this doctrine, and when we practice this doctrine, it will radically change our lives. It will radically change our actions, and more importantly, our reactions to people and to life all around us. God at the center. Knowing and trusting God. His perfect, sovereign, caring plan. It's essential for life. It's essential, particularly, for reconciliation. Now, here's the sad reality, friends. There are many Christians, and I use the word many purposefully. There are many Christians where God is not central. Oh, yeah, he's a part of their lives. But he's not central. One of the commentators put it like this God is to be a spoke, or God is a spoke in the wheel of life, not the hub of the wheel of life. You get that picture? He's not supposed to be just a spoke in the wheel of our life. He's to be the hub, central to the wheel of our life. But for Joseph, everything centered on God, and that's what made the difference. And that's what enabled forgiveness and reconciliation. So let's think about that. Do you remember what he said to Mrs. Potiphar when she tried to seduce him all those years ago, back in chapter 39? How then could I do such a great evil and sin against God. And then to the cupbearer and the baker, this is what he said, do not interpretations belong to God. And later to Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And we can give many other examples, the naming of his sons, the way he talked to his brothers from the very first moment he met them. It's God, 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 God is central in his life. That's the key to his attitude, and attitude is the key to reconciliation. From first to last, our sovereign God was central to Joseph. It shaped his attitude. It enabled his reconciliation. But you'll notice there that in five verses, God is mentioned four times, and there they are. I put them all up there because I think this is really important. Verse five, it was to save lives that God sent me, ahead of you. He's going to say that again, by the way, uh, later on in chapter 50. But verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. You see, Joseph had a God-centered faith and a God-centered, Centered worldview. He saw everything through the lens of God's sovereignty and God's providential care. Of course, he knew about the jealousy and the lies and the cover up and the mistreatment. He knew all about that. But he knew that above all those things, there was a higher purpose that God had. In bringing him to Egypt. And so basically saying here, particularly in verse 8, you didn't send me here. Satan didn't send me here. Bad luck didn't send me here. God sent me here. A divine appointment. You see, God is central, God is in control. And God works in and through people and their circumstances. You know, he's doing that right now with you. Whatever, whatever you're going through right now. And of course, how many people? with so many stories going on here right now. But you've got to know he has a purpose. He knows what he's doing. He is in control. And you can resist it and think you know better and go off on your own. Or you can submit and say, God, show me, show us. The, the famous commentator, Barnhouse, who, who was a minister in 10th Presbyterian in, in Philadelphia wrote this. The jealous hatred of the brethren, the dreams of a youth, the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt, the preparation of Joseph by a life of adversity, the anger of Pharaoh and the imprisonment of his two officials, the strange dreams of those prisoners and Joseph's supernatural gift of interpretation, the dreams of Pharaoh, the change of rainfall in a fourth of Africa to bring about two cycles of abundance and famine by the flood and failure of the Nile, the elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt. All of these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God, who is Lord of all in order to fulfill the counsel of his will. he shaped it all because he's in control of all. And if you don't see Jesus as center of all things, if you don't see God as being center of your world and your existence and your plans and your future, then you you know what's going to happen? You will become a prisoner of the circumstances of your life. You will be a prisoner of people around you. You will be a prisoner to your past. You will be a prisoner to all the people who have hurt you and annoyed you and disappointed you. You will be a prisoner, but you'll never be free. You will never be free until you realize God is sovereign and God cares. And if you're a prisoner to circumstances and people, what a futile waste of your life. And some of us are are, are probably in the danger of wasting our lives because we're prisoners and we're not free. So does God really work good out of evil? Of course he does. And of course the greatest example of that is the cross. On the day of Pentecost, in the great sermon that Peter preached, side by side he says, you nailed him to a cross, but... It was God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You did it, (laughs) but God planned it. God is sovereign and he's in control. Now, uh, think of a a couple of um, application things for this before we move on. Um, First of all, let this passage encourage you to look beyond the good things and the bad things of life and see God's sovereign plan, and for those of you who are young, you know that's a good lesson to learn as young as you possibly can, because if you leave it too late, then you 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 can mess it up so badly. See that He has an agenda for you, and that this agenda is worked out in and through people and circumstances. Of course, that's what he uses because we live in a world full of people and circumstances. But he uses all of it to shape your agenda. God is in control, not people, not circumstances. And you've got to see that. And if you can't see that, then you're, you're in a heap of trouble. You're in a heap of trouble. But when you see it, the second thing you've got to do is submit to it and accept God's sovereign plan in all the events of your life. Submit to His control, even when it seems like chaos. Submit to His control, even when bad people seem to win. Submit to His control, even when it hurts. So see His sovereignty, and submit to His sovereignty. We're thinking of this first point, reconciliation. For this to occur... All parties must come under the lordship of Jesus. And last week we saw the brothers repenting, didn't we? Now we see Joseph graciously, generously, faithfully responding to that. Now every conflict situation is different and I'm sure there's hardly a person here that there's not some kind of hurtful problem in our lives even right now. But for that conflict situation that you might be in, to be resolved, all parties must come under the lordship of Christ and respond accordingly for it to be fixed properly. To be fixed properly. Now, typically, it involves, as we thought, saw last week, confession and repentance. We saw that from the brothers. And always involves grace and faith, as we see here in Joseph. And it can take a long time, perhaps 20 years. And sad reality is, of course, it may never happen because some people are so proud in their sin, so arrogant, so dismissive of this whole thing about sin that they wish to continue in their rebellion. They wish to continue in unrepentant living they wish to continue in faithless and graceless existence, that reconciliation is simply impossible. I suppose we've got to remember this, that not every relationship will work out neatly and quickly. Here it did, but it doesn't always happen like this. I mean, some choose to abuse their freedom, and some people choose to neglect grace and ignore truth. But what I want to say to us tonight, that in the midst of all kinds of emotion and tears and hugs that we might see here in this particular chapter, and even in the midst of the desire to make good relationships, there has to be an understanding that God is sovereign and in control, and God will work out His purposes. And when that is in our head and in our hearts, we can begin to be free, but... Until that, we're simply prisoners to our circumstances and to the people around us. so reconciliation is key, and that's a beautiful picture of what we see here in genesis forty five but we also see provision, and we 're going to spend less time in this the last section these verses twenty six to sorry sixteen to twenty eight report the plan and the provision of the return and how Jacob responded to that. Having time to look at all the verses, you'll be uh, glad to know. But we see God's abundant provision again for his people. I mean, God provided for Jacob and his sons far beyond what they could ever have dreamed. And it's, by the way, it's crucial that God would do so. It was crucial that this family did not die It was crucial that this family did not disappear in the famine. Why? What's so special about this family? Well, this is the the promised family where the messianic line would start from and continue from, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the boys, all 12 of them, to create the people of Israel, and eventually from the people of Israel would come the Savior of the world, From this small family struggling with famine would come the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, dying on the cross outside Jerusalem and rising from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, the one who would save his people from their sins. And all that we see in Genesis is creating a stage and a platform on which God would display the story of gracious salvation And there are so many many links in the chain, but all of them necessary. Now, for instance, imagine if Joseph had died in that pit, or he died in prison, or, or, or what if the brothers decide, you know what, we're not going to go to Egypt and buy food there, or if they had somehow been attacked by robbers on the way home what would have happened? Well, the story would have been over. The royal line would have been wiped out. The messianic line would have disappeared. Now, Joseph didn't know all of what we know because we're looking back and he was looking forward, but he knew enough to know and to say, it's God who sent me here, and it's God who's going to provide for me and my family. And therefore, we see this provision in these verses, lots of food and and carts, by the way, this is the first time carts would have been in Palestine because it was very much a, uh, an Egyptian thing. And so Joseph was giving his brothers, you know, top class limousines of the day, donkeys, numerous changes of clothes, and all their money back again. God graciously provides exceedingly abundantly beyond all they asked or even expected. And so he does for us. So let's think about that provision. Of course, there's material provision, wasn't there? Again, I say these carts would have been the equivalent to a fleet of luxury limousines straight off the showroom floor. The designer gear, as far as the clothing was concerned. Benjamin, as you probably remember from the reading, got more than the rest. But the boys had sort of got over themselves as far as that was concerned. The best quality resources for the three-week journey back for their dad and then the turnaround and coming back again. God provided everything for his people through Joseph. Now, while we have no divine right to prosperity, as some falsely teach, when he gives us a level of prosperity, we should receive it humbly and with thanks, and say, God, you're a God who's not only in control. You're a God who cares. And we've got to remember that everything he gives to us, as Caleb told us last week in James chapter 5, everything belongs to him, and we're just managers for him, not owners. So there's material provision. There was emotional provision, the emotional needs of everybody was met. Now, it's not stated explicitly in the text, but I think it's implied. Because remember, think of Jacob. He was an emotionally needy old man. I hope all old men don't become emotionally needy, or you're in trouble, and so is Pauline. But this guy, you know, he, he was a, pretty much a depressive um, he continually played the blame game. He was often pessimistic and negative. He suffered from irrational fear. He was selfish and stubborn and unwise. <laughs> Bit of a, a mess. And then the sons, do you remember them? I mean, cruel, jealous, violent, with bad relationships all around between themselves. I mean, this is a dysfunctional family. But what we're seeing here is Healing of dysfunctionality, emotional healing all round, so that the boys become caring about their dad and their younger brother. And the dad says, you know what? I will go down to Egypt. It takes time, but God is patient So, I don't know what kind of situation you find yourself in. You may find yourself in a dysfunctional situation right now in your life. God provides. Notice there, verse 24. Don't quarrel on the way. Why did Joseph say that? Because he knew them. He knew what they were like. There's a little example just of that. Emotional provision. Brothers, when you leave here, don't do what you normally do. Grow up and don't quarrel. And then, of course, the spiritual provision because God used Joseph to save his family, to save the Old Testament church, because God is in control and God cares. In verse 26 there, we read that Jacob was stunned. Wouldn't you be? For 22 years, he thought his son was dead, and now he discovers he's very much alive. And verse 28, he says, I'm convinced. I wonder tonight, as we hear these things about a sovereign God in control of all aspects of our lives— And a God who truly cares and shows it in so many different ways. Are you stunned in disbelief? Or can you say, I'm convinced? Or maybe you're in between. Maybe you, like a pendulum, you swing between being stunned in unbelief and being convinced in Belief and we swing back, and we swing back, and we swing back. God says to you tonight, He says to us, He says to me to us, I'm in control, and I care. And you've got to grapple with that. And base your relationships and your planning for the future as well as dealing with your past on the basis of those two great truths. Now, you're here tonight. Perhaps you're a visitor. You're here tonight and you might never be back. After hearing me preach, you probably say, I'll never be back. You're here. Or you might be here always because you're a member here. Can I say to you, you're not here by luck or by chance we don't believe in those things you're here by divine appointment and maybe you weren't expected to be here maybe you thought you were going to be doing something else tonight but you're here and maybe as you take these two great truths god's sovereign control and his providential care You might not be able to make sense of everything that's happened in the past, and you might not even be able to make sense of what's happening in the the present and the future. You might not be able to make sense of it all perfectly, but maybe you're starting on the journey to say, I trust in His sovereignty, and I trust in His care, and I'm going to go forward with Him no matter what. Through the pain, through the mistakes, through the sins, through the complexities of life, through all the All the bad stuff that's happened in my life. Because you've got to say, God, I believe that you are the master. And I believe the master has a master plan. And you don't make mistakes. Because you are in control. And you do care. To me, those are the lessons of Genesis 45. And I think they're essential for my life and for yours, and for the health of our church. Glad to talk to you about any of these things later, if you wish. Lord, you are in control, and you care. You are master, and you have a master plan. May we never fear these things, but may we embrace them and walk with you in faith. Lord, into your hands we commit the pain of the past, the present, and the future, and ask that you will sovereignly work it all out for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.